joy to sing and be led so well. And I trust it's always a joy for you to turn to the pages of Scripture on the Lord's Day. I love being able to open them with you and for you, and I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 14. If you're visiting with us, we're working our way verse by verse through this gospel. We'd love to have you join us on this journey. The purpose of the Gospel of John is twofold, you remember, it's experiential, it's the call one to saving faith, and it's also, well, it's evangelistic rather, to call one to saving faith, and it's also experiential, that we live out our faith uh, by beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus, and the pages of Scripture afford us to behold the glory of the Lord, never think lightly of the Word of God, it's the exclusive place that the glory of Christ is, is found. And we're working our way through the upper room discourse. And I'll remind you again of that Scottish preacher who said many, many years ago, when these verses in the upper room discourse are examined with proper reverential excitement, they will accomplish great good in our lives. And so the Gospel of John is immensely practical. It's experiential. It comes down into our life. And of late, as we've began this upper room discourse, we've seen, haven't we, a practical need to be serving others, practical need to be loving others, the call and practical need to take heed, not to fall into sin, and also the practical providence of finding grace as believers when we do. We saw that from Peter's denial last Lord's Day to end chapter 13. Very practical. And yet, each time we've considered the passages we have in the Gospel of John, we've always first worked to understand what the passage means and what it meant to the disciples. And then, and only then, after grasping that, do we move to the application for us today? Too often we crave the practical and we miss the theological and the truth of the passage itself. And to do that is to put the cart before the horse. And so before we ever get to the practical for us, which is certainly always what God intends for us by way of either exhortation or by comfort or by both on our journey, we always need to work to see what's going on at the time in the life of our Lord and the life of the disciples in our passage and then bridge the gap to us today to see what can be applied. Well, I'll tell you, there's much that can be applied from our passage today. And I trust that our passage today is a great blessing to you. And I want to begin by saying this as we begin this new chapter, just by way of reminder, it really dawned on me recently, um, very recently, that just as the Gospel of John has a twofold purpose, evangelistic and experiential, we talk of something theologically called union and communion. You've perhaps heard me talk about union and communion before. Well, I want just very quickly to put your thinking caps on, and I'll explain why in a moment. When we think of union, that means we're placed into union with Christ, we're one with Him, that every blessing that He received from the Father becomes ours, that's our union. Now when we speak of union, there's two ways to view union, to understand union. There's first what's called federal union. Federal just means covenant, covenant union. How many times in the Gospel of John so far uh, have we heard Jesus say and speak of all those that the Father gave me before time began. We've heard that over and over again from the Lord Jesus. When we get to John 17, he'll say that in the most explicit ways possible. And so there was this covenant before time began where every believer, you and I, were in federal union, covenant union with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then there's the second way to understand union. It's what's called faith Union. So first there's federal union, covenant, but then there's faith union. And that simply means this. You lay hold of your union by faith. You lay hold of all that was promised yours before eternity passed as one of God's children. You lay hold of that by faith. Do you know what springs from union? Communion. Union is fixed. 
If God makes a covenant to save you and I, nothing in the world will stop that happening. Nothing can snatch our salvation from us. And we lay hold of it by faith and faith alone. From that union, we then live out communion. The union isn't going anywhere. That is fixed eternally forever. But our communion ebbs and flows. Sometimes we're doing really well communing with God. Sometimes we're making use of all the means of grace and we're doing really well. And our communion is up here, if you will. And then sometimes it's not so good. Sin severs it. We don't lay hold of the means of grace. We neglect the Lord's Day gathering. We neglect to read the Bible. We neglect to pray. We neglect to have fellowship. And our communion wanes. But the union's always fixed. Our passage will call us this morning to greater communion with the Lord Jesus. And so we're beginning a new chapter today, chapter 14. We're still very much in the upper room on the evening where Jesus has been betrayed by Judas. He's spoken about the denial that Peter will make. He's washed the disciples' feet. And now in chapter 14, he will continue to offer them these final words of instruction before on this very same night being arrested and then being dragged through very unjust and illegal trials taking place at night, breaking every law court, law and rule in the land. And so there's plenty going on here. There's plenty for us to discover here. And God's so kind, isn't he, to give us his word to dive into and to study. And God's so kind to give us the Holy Spirit who ministers to us his work of illumination, meaning that he opens our eyes to understand the the word of God as we work to understand it. Our focus this morning will be on the opening six verses of John 14. I want us to read the opening 15 verses together and and then pray. And so follow along with me in your Bibles as I read. John chapter 14 verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. If you'd known me, you would also have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also and greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let's pray. Father, we we come before you as your children, attentive to your fatherly voice. Help us by your spirit to enable us to be attentive at a heart level. We don't want this to be a mere religious exercise forgotten and moved on with and ticked off. We want to be experientially in communion with you, our living God and Savior. And so, Father, would you please help us and truly comfort our hearts 
and cause us to commune in sweeter ways with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I said, the opening six verses will be our focus this morning. And there are some interesting and important things to take note of here. We've just read of our Lord telling the disciples in the upper room as they observe the final Passover meal together. That's what they're doing in the upper room. Don't ever forget that. We've just read of our Lord telling them not to be troubled. And yet, have you ever thought and realized that Jesus, as he says that, is himself troubled? We know that because back in chapter 13, perhaps you can see it there on the same page as your Bible in verse 21, Jesus became troubled, it says. We mustn't ever forget the humanity of our Lord. We must never forget that Jesus is fully divine either, but we must never forget his humanity. And so here is Jesus speaking of and thinking about his betrayal and all that's going to come in his arrest and his death and suffering. And we're told that he becomes troubled. And so you have this troubled Jesus telling his disciples not to be troubled. Have you ever done something like similar with your kids, perhaps, for example, or someone? I know as parents we do this. We say, you're not doing this, or can you please do this, or please don't do this. And as you say those words to them, you know that you're calling them to do something that you're not either doing yourself or not doing that you should be. You know the feeling. And your kids and whoever, they just see this giant pot calling the kettle black. All right? But this is intriguing, is it not? That Jesus is troubled in his spirit and he's calling the disciples not to be troubled. Well, that's just one of a few things we'll work to unfold in just a moment. But let me break down our passage for you so you know where we will be heading. And so that you'll see the real theme that God has for us today. I'm ever just astonished that God makes himself evident amongst us by what we look at from Lord's Day to Lord's Day. And I trust that this aids and blesses us so that we can experience our good Lord's presence and commune with him as he shepherds us in all of life's challenges and troubles. Because you'll agree with me that life is full of challenges and troubles. We do, we will often in this life, come face to face with troubling times. And so we need this passage this morning, like we need air to our lungs. We'll see first that as we face troubling times, as we lay hold of Christ more and more by communing with Him, we can be, number one, comforted by continuing to trust Jesus in verse 1. And then second, we'll see that we are to be comforted by the realities of heaven in verses 2 and 3. And then third, we'll see that we are comforted by having exclusive access to the Father in verses 4 to 6. Continuing to trust in Jesus, the realities of heaven, and having exclusive access to the Father. May God take those realities and wed them deep down into our hearts so that we can commune with God in these troubling times that we face uniquely in each of our life. And so let's get underway right away by seeing first, number one, being comforted by continuing to trust in Jesus in verse 1. Look there with me in your Bible. Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled. Why would Jesus tell them not to be troubled? Well, they had a few very good reasons to be troubled if you stop and think about it, right? Because they were hearing from Jesus that he was going to be put to death by the religious and political elite. Even if they didn't fully grasp it, they were still having those words wash over them. They were surely by now feeling the rebuke and stinging a little bit from having had Jesus wash their feet 
right as they were walking into the upper room, debating among themselves who was going to be the most prominent and greatest. No doubt there's embarrassment there for them. And unless you grasp the embarrassment that would have come right at that point, you haven't really grasped the upper room correctly. There's trouble in all of that. Troubled hearts were further increased in the disciples' life here as they heard that from among them one was going to betray Jesus by handing him over to be arrested. Then they were no doubt troubled, Peter certainly was, seriously troubled, to then learn about the fact that one of them, Peter, would deny the Lord three times, not once, but three times, and then added to all of that was Jesus' repeated words to them that in a little while he'll be with them no more. And so when you take all of that, no wonder they're troubled. Not sure how the trouble would have been manifesting itself in that room. The way we handle pressure under trouble manifests itself differently with each and every one of us, depending on our character and our spirituality and our maturity. But they're certainly troubled. And so no wonder Jesus says to them, do not be troubled. The idea conveyed though is not that they were going to soon be troubled, obviously, and then to not be so. The idea is that they are already seriously troubled in their heart. And Jesus is calling for a ceasing of that troubled heart, resting somewhere else rather than their own circumstances. You know, the word troubled there is a Greek word that means to feel distressed or afflicted, tossed around like water. In fact, it's the same word that's used of the pool earlier on at Bethesda, where the the pool was stirred up, it was troubled water. It takes on the idea of being agitated as well. You know, Jesus promised us in John 16 that there will be trouble, afflictions in this life. And so that's a reality that we'll have troubled hearts from time to time. You know, as the God-man here, Christ, he could, with, his, with all his divinity, he could see inside the hearts of those disciples in the room. He could see what was going on outside of them, namely the betrayal, the denial, the embarrassment, the pending loss an absence of Jesus, he could see inside that all of that external was causing great angst and distress internally, inside of them, in their hearts. And so Jesus says to them all, do not let your heart be troubled. He didn't say don't let your thumb be troubled, did he? He said heart. The heart being the seat of our affections and and what drives our will and determines our actions and thoughts When things go off track, it happens at the heart level. External factors always bring about what is already in our hearts. They don't place things into our hearts. That's the key truth of the Christian life. External factors don't put things in. They reveal what's already in. Jesus spoke about that, didn't he? And so... There they were entering into the upper room. They, wanted, they had the pride in their heart of wanting to be regarded by others as great. And so they're seeking satisfaction from their reputation, how they're thought of by others. And then the sting, and, sting of the rebuke and the strong lesson comes from Jesus by way of him washing their feet, as I said. Peter was pridefully boasting, wasn't he? We saw that last week where he's he's like I'll lay down my life and Jesus turns to him and says you'll lay down your life you'll actually deny me three times when you could lay down your life for me and Jesus then gives him the sting of telling him that he would deny him three times our life lessons are always lessons of the heart because in our heart we battle worship don't we either the worship of self and the kingdom of self We want to be the greatest and we want to be the bravest or the worship of God. What does that look like? What does the kingdom of God look like in our heart? It looks like this, love God and serve others. Love God and serve others. 
They were troubled in their hearts. They were being pressed in their hearts as to what they were worshipping in their hearts and what they were seeking satisfaction in. The hearts of the disciples here were being tossed around by self-satisfaction and also sadness from things like betrayal, denial, and loss. And Christ here, right there at that juncture, says, do not be troubled. And then he offers up, gladly, part of the remedy to a troubled heart. And it's crucial. Look at the rest of verse 1. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. Now, two words, indicative and imperative. The indicative is a statement of fact. The imperative is a command. Here in verse 1, even though the NAS doesn't render it so, believe in God is, is actually an indicative. Stating, you believe in God, statement of fact, that's what he says to them. You believe in God. Now, command, believe also in me. That's what he's saying there. He's saying that troubled hearts need to be believing hearts. Troubled hearts need to be trusting hearts. These disciples were all Jewish men. Jesus says to them, you trust God, the one true and living God. You've grown up learning the Torah, the Old Testament. You would have known the Psalms. You you knew the first five books of the law off by heart by a certain young age. You've seen the Psalms. Psalms like Psalm 31 verse 14 which says, But as for me, I trust in you, O Yahweh. I say, you are my God. Jesus knew that's what they sung, that's what they believed. Very familiar with that. Psalms like Psalm 25 verse 1 and 2 which says this, You, Yahweh, I lift my soul, my God, in you I trust. And so Christ knows that. He knows that that's what they understand, that's what they believe. And he's saying, you believe in God, believe now in me. The same trust that you have in Yahweh, God, have now in me. But please note, very importantly, the kind of trust that Jesus is calling for here is not a trust unto salvation. That's already happened for them. You say, well, how can we know that so definitively? How can we know that they've already trusted unto salvation? Well, back in chapter 13, Jesus told them as he was washing their feet, didn't he? He said, you are already clean. You just need to wash your feet. Remember that? That is to say, you are justified fully, but you'll still sin. And so as part of your sanctification, clean your feet. And so here in verse 1, as Jesus says, believe, that is trust, it's not unto salvation, but for sanctification, for communion, for communion. And that's what verse 1, and that's what God is calling from us here. Trust in Him. When we face troubling times. This trust is the first of three major comforts that we see in our passage this morning. Back in John chapter 5 verse 19, Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Jesus speaks the words of Yahweh God. He does the works of Yahweh God. For both He and the Father are Yahweh God. And since that is the case, and since Yahweh is a strong tower, since Yahweh is a refuge, then so too is Jesus. We can trust our God amidst the troubling times. Finances are not balancing. Marriage not doing well. Kids running in rebellion. Fractured family relationships. Lifelong health issues. Terminal illness. Heartbreaking loss. All of those each cause great trouble to our hearts and 
minds. And Jesus reminds us here, I'm with you. Just as the God of Israel, Yahweh was an ever-present help. He says to these disciples, so too am I. Just as God provided a way, so too I, Jesus, provide a way. A way to seek to remedy those things by drawing closer to God through His Word and His church and by loving God and loving others and by helping deal with those particular hurts and troubles that will not go away, that will be with us all the days of our life here on earth. He says, trust me. Trust me. As we trust in Him to help us handle them. Particularly the maladies and trials that won't go away in this life. You know they're there. He says, trust me to help you to handle them. As that which God is using for your good, even when you can't see that He's using them for your good. That is the definition of trust. There's one thing I want to point out before we move on, which I made an allusion to earlier. You know, Jesus was troubled. He was. And he was calling for troubled hearts to trust God the Father. And here's how that paradox works out. In his humanity, Jesus tasted the fullness of trouble. And so as to sympathize with us in our troubled hearts and also to enable us to endure such trouble that you and I will not be overcome by our trouble because his troubled heart is a place where our troubled hearts can find all the rest it needs as we draw closer to him as we look full in the face of what causes us our troubles and then lay them at his feet the one who endured the greatest of trouble for us in our place. And so, the first way to deal with troubling times is to be comforted by the continuing trust in Jesus as the God who knows and cares. You have to trust that He knows and cares for you. You must. We must. The second comforting reality we're given by God here as we face troubling times really is the opportunity to be, number two, comforted by the realities of heaven. We don't think about heaven enough. We don't study about heaven enough. We certainly don't preach about heaven enough. Look at verses two and three. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there, you may be also. Our God is so kind to afford us these comforting truths. Jesus had been saying to the disciples that he was going away. No one likes to lose someone they love, right? No one. People, people leave us. No one likes that. It really hurts. It causes grief to think that you'll be left without them. We miss them more than words can convey. Not only that, we also wonder what life will be like without them. And so the disciples are in the room and they're, they're facing that reality that Christ is going to leave them. They've been with him every day for three years. They forsook all to follow him. They, they loved Him. They've grown deeper and deeper in their, in their communion with Him. And Jesus knew that He would go, and so He gives them these words to comfort them and comfort us in a very special way. He says first, that the absence will only be temporary. He says, I'm, I'm going to come again. I'll come again. I'll come again to receive you to Myself. And he says also 
that he's going to prepare a place for us to live and rest eternally. And he calls it, look there, my father's house. No one else spoke like that. Only Jesus spoke like this. The Jews would say, our father. Jesus alone said, my father. And only Jesus ever said, my father's house. And he said it three times on three different occasions. Back in John chapter 2, verse 16, he said of the temple. He said, do not make my father's house a place of business. And then in the parable of the prodigal son, you remember, Jesus spoke of the father. And the prodigal coming back to the father's home. And then here, Jesus refers to the father's house as heaven. And so since heaven is the father's house, then heaven is home. Heaven is home. And that's how Jesus is seeking to comfort the disciples there in the upper room. And I hope you are comforted by this, that that. He's informing us and reminding us and pressing upon us that life in this world and all the troubles of this life while we are in this world are not home. In Hebrews chapter 11, you read about the people who who lived by faith. They they lived by continuing trust in their life. And in verse 9, you read of Abraham as living by faith, by trust in God. And he says he did so as an alien in a foreign world land that's what this life is to be like for you and I if we're to find true joy and comfort if you try and find true comfort and joy in this life and in this world and the things of this world you'll only ever experience trouble in your heart that's a fact but if you understand that you and I are in a foreign land an alien land then we will begin to be able to endure the troubles of this life because we'll understand that that we're on our way home. You think about going to your house, maybe when it's clean and tidy and the kids haven't wrecked it or whatever, but think about going home to your house after a big day, demanding day, whatever it may be, and you go into your house and you sit down and you rest and you relax before the kids come back in. But no, you sit down and you rest and relax. Our home, our home is like a haven, our earthly home. But heaven is our Father's home. And there's true rest in there. We're not con- we are not to consider this life, and this world, our home. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14, we read this. For here on earth, we do not have a lasting city. There's no lasting city here. But we are seeking the city, the home, which is to come. Here in this world, we're in a foreign land. Even, as has been well said, we live in an enemy's land. We're among enemies here in this land. And we ought not make this land our abode or seek to attach ourselves to this strange land, but rather seek the land which is to come. And here is what Jesus wants us to apprehend and appropriate, to to understand it and let it go inside of you that no matter what happens in this life, no matter the troubles that come our way, no matter the battles, whether that's with your health, with relationships, with finances, nothing will ever take away the home that is fixed for you and it'll never be taken away. And here is something that Sinclair Ferguson brought out in his commentary that's too good not to share. He he highlighted the fact, the implication of the fact that because Jesus is going to prepare a place, a dwelling for us in the Father's house, because that he will come back and take us to this house, then it is absolutely certain that he will keep us and provide for us in between those two events. Isn't that a beautiful thought? That he will not only keep us for the house that is to come, but his hand will be upon us ensuring that in each and every moment of trouble that we face in this life, his hand will be there. Do you know that Peter 
as he heard these words, would go on to write in 1 Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen to this. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. Listen to this. Kept in heaven for you. So both the inheritance and the place is kept. It's quite remarkable. Comfort in troubled times. Peter grasped what was said here in the upper room. You and I need to grasp what is said here from our Lord. We must trust him continually. And we must be comforted by the realities of heaven. Heaven is ours in the full. Nothing can take away home from us. Every tear in that house will be wiped away. Every tear from every trouble will be gone. Every pain from every illness will be gone. Every sin will no longer be committed. Every joy here on this earth, will be magnified. All because of Jesus going to prepare a place for us. I need to understand this. Jesus, even though he's a carpenter on earth, he doesn't go and build a house in his father's house. Do you know how he prepares a place for us? He goes to the cross. And he rises again. And he ascends to the father's right hand. And no unholiness is welcome in the father's house. Only righteousness is welcome in the Father's house. And you and I, the most unholy and unrighteous, get to be there because of Him. Thank you. Yeah, comforted by the realities of heaven. Third, the third reality now is not only are we to be comforted by the continual trust in Jesus and the comforted by the realities of heaven, we are third to be comforted by having exclusive access to the Father. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, you know the way where I'm going. I find that phrase really remarkable. You know the way where I'm going. Deep down in you, you know. But but your heart wrestle and worship has clouded what you actually know in your heart. You, you know, but you're trying to be the greatest and you're not serving others. And you know you're not loving others and you should be. You're not laying hold of things. And so it's no surprise that deep down, just like, you know the way where I'm going. But Thomas says, on behalf of the rest of them, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And then you know this verse, it's remarkable. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. The title of the sermon this morning is Via Veritas Vita. It's just Latin for Via, way, Veritas, truth, and Vita, life. We have access to all of God's blessings through Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it? This is the next I am statement from the Lord Jesus. You think when Jesus says, I am the way, definite article, not a way, Jesus is the only way to God. He is the only one who revealed God to us. John chapter 1 verse 18 says that no one has seen God, understood God at any time. But the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. He has revealed Him. The way. He's the way. In the book of Acts, our faith, Christianity, is called repeatedly over and over and over. Six times, I believe, the way. The way. The Apostle Peter would go on to write in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. 
Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might, what? Bring us to God. Bring us to God. There's a lot of people who live and have lived and will live on this earth. There's a very small number who are still incalculable, who have been granted access to the Father. You and I can find comfort that we are not distant from the one true and living God, that we are not any longer hostile in our minds to the one true and living God, that you and I are no longer separated from the one true and living God, that you and I are no longer under the judgment that was due us, that we deserved from the one true and living God as a holy judge. You and I have access to Holy Father. Jesus says, comes to the Father, not the judge, comes to the Father. Christ came down on earth and lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. He kept the law that you and I could never keep. And as he was keeping that law, as he bowed his will to the Father and he kept the Father's law, he was amassing for himself a perfect spotless righteousness that he would then clothe you and I with, the most undeserving people. And then as the Father, as we come into the Father's presence by exclusive access, he looks at us and he says, I know that righteousness. I've seen that righteousness before. That's the righteousness of my son and you're welcome in here. That's the most astonishing news you could ever think of. When you get altitude and fly up a little high about from all the world's troubles and problems and just remember life's main goal is to be part of the love gift between the father and the son. That you and I get the realities of heaven that you and I have access now to the creator of the universe. No wonder Jesus goes on to say, whatever you ask in my name, my father will do it. No wonder he says that, because we're so precious to him. I want you to take note of one last thing. I want you to take note that at the beginning, that even while Jesus was troubled, at being betrayed, facing death, and suffering incomprehensibly. I want you to take note that he was still focused on helping the disciples in their trouble. Have you thought about that before? He was focused on helping the disciples with their trouble. Such love such grace, such compassion, such kindness, such mercy, such a savior. We are a people most blessed. And we are a people who experience affliction. But if you and I continue to trust in Jesus, if you and I continue to consider the realities of heaven. Our home group just started studying heaven. And it's had some great discussion as we're just beginning. And if you and I always counted a privilege beyond all privileges to have exclusive access to the Father, both our sins forgiven and adoption as children, you and I will be able to, by God's grace, get through the troubles in this life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for your word. Lord, we're not superheroes. We're imperfect people who fail. We believe in God. 
We trust in you, Lord. We thank you that we have blessings immeasurable. We thank you that we're going home. We'll go home and we'll live with people who we were at odds with here on earth. Would you help us to to hearken back to loving one another? Would you help us to hearken back to the grace that we receive when we fail and sin? And will you cause us to not let our hearts be troubled by the troubles of this life? And Lord, we thank you that you are the way, the truth and the life. We thank you for exclusive access to you through the shed blood and the perfect life and the glorious resurrection of your beloved son. Father, just as your son turned and looked to all the disciples in this upper room and could see inside their hearts, Lord, you can see inside each and every heart here now. You know the depths of despair. And you know the correction that needs to be made and the comfort that needs to be given. And Lord, you are the wise counselor. You'll apply comfort and correction wherever it needs to go perfectly. Help us to love one another. Father, you know hearts here that aren't yours. Lord, help them look to the objective work of Jesus Christ as the sole grounds of salvation and help them to forsake their sin and come with a trust in the greatest gift that you gave to this world, your beloved son. Would you save people here today? Would you sanctify us here today, please, Lord? We've been given a union Help us to live in communion by trusting you in the hard times, by looking to heaven at all times, and by living to the praise of your glory because of the forgiveness of sins and the adoption as one of your children, Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Mm-hmm. <laughs>